0: Hey there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of t for c If you're interested in lobbying or advocacy, then this is the episode for you because my next guest has twice been named a top lobbyist by one of the top newspapers on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and he's been called a power broker for those without a voice. But before I introduce you to Thomas Sheridan, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays, and gives you an exclusive window into the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time. The number dot coffee.org and the sign up box is right there on the home page. Now, my latte loving wannabe lobbyists, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Tom Sheridan, a social worker by training and an advocate by trade he's someone who brings a unique perspective to his work as a public policy strategist in Washington, D.C. Tom's career spans more than 30 years and has touched nearly all of the transformative social issues of our time, both domestically and internationally. From the millions of lives saved by the successful advocacy of Bono's One Campaign to the promotion of new financing mechanisms such as the U.S. government's Social Innovation Fund for Social Problem Solving, Tom has catalyzed and provided the lead strategic council for some of the boldest and most effective public policy campaigns of the last two decades. He's known on Capitol Hill and in the West Wing of the White House for using his deep understanding of the political process and decades-long relationships with senior members of Congress and top administration officials to help organizations achieve scalable, positive social change. Tom is also the author of a new book entitled, Helping the Good Do Better. How a White Hat Lobbyist Advocates for Social Change. Tom, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So what is your favorite coffee at this hour of the day? I
1: am a latte, skim latte drinker in the afternoon.
0: Got it. Is it something (laughs) you make in the office or do you get it at the corner coffee shop?
1: Both. We have a little machine here in the office, and sometimes I just want to get out and take a walk. So I walk over to the corner coffee shop and get it there.
0: Well, today is definitely one of those days to take that walk outside.
1: It, it certainly is. It's beautiful today. A oh little God. warm still, but very nice.
0: Exactly. Okay, Tom, let's dive into these 10 espresso shots. The first question being, What? Entry-level jobs are available to young people who want to break into the lobbying for social good space. Well, traditionally, the best
1: entry-level jobs are jobs on Capitol Hill. Even jobs as legislative correspondents and legislative assistants, those jobs that give you an experience understanding how Capitol Hill works, what the politics is and what the substance are, are invaluable as a kind of foundational starting point. But even in firms like mine, we do start people at an entry-level associate level work where they're just working as, as a legislative associate in very much the same capacity that they would be working on Capitol Hill. They're working for clients as opposed to members of Congress, but they're covering issues, they're reporting on hearings. They are doing research and writing. Those kind of jobs are available in most lobby firms in town. They're available, obviously, all over Capitol Hill. They're competitive. They're hard to get, but Washington still works a little bit like UPS. You kind of have to start in the mailroom. It's a requirement.
0: Okay. I've (laughs) never heard that analogy before, but I'll definitely use it. I'll tell you that. So Tom, what is a useful skill or skills that you look for in the young people that you hire? I look for people who can multitask
1: and prioritize. So I like people who have been bartenders, waiters, waitresses, busboys, busgirls. I like the multitasking, prioritization, kind of self-control that those jobs teach you. Honestly, I also like the humility of that. From there, I look for people who have some political experience. They've worked in campaigns or elections. they volunteered on campaigns back at home. But they understand how politics works, and they've used their citizenship in some particularly important way. And then the last thing I look for is something that they're passionate about. To work in politics, particularly for -for not-for-profit progressive causes, you have to be passionate about the issues. Because if you don't care more about them than the folks on Capitol Hill do, it's hard to get people's attention. So those are the three really most important ingredients I look for, a multitasker, somebody who's got some political experience, and someone who's passionate about at least an issue. Terrific.
0: What about life experiences, Tom? And in this case, I'm talking about things that happen outside the classroom that could be anything from volunteering to walking dogs. What do you think are the most useful ones to have for someone starting out in this field?
1: So, I, Andrew, I think you, you answered your own question there. I love the idea of people who have done something that made a difference. And I don't care if that's volunteering. I don't care if that's AmeriCorps or the Peace Corps. I don't care if you've worked in a shelter for abused animals or orphaned animals. I, I want to see somebody who is connected to an issue and put their their boots on the ground around it. They've rolled up their sleeves and they've done things that mattered. And it can be you know large or small, but frequently it's the small things that really matter. And it's the place that you will see people as kind of genuine appear. And I look and prod for for that kind of genuine, the genuine activist, the person isn't doing this because they studied it in school, and now it's a job, but it's a person that's been kind of doing it most of their lives. And so I, I like to hear particularly young people talk about their first experiences in issue-based advocacy or volunteering or or human interest stuff. We love. I, I represent the AmeriCorps community. Uh, we we fight for their money on Capitol Hill every year. So I love people coming out of any of the AmeriCorps programs because they you know those two years of service really matter and they they define in somebody you know both a humility and a spirit of service that is invaluable in the work environment.
0: A 100% in the world that I just came out of, that I left two years ago, the international development and humanitarian world, we would have called it mission-driven.
1: Yes, good word.
0: What about someone's major? Is it a deciding factor to get into your profession? And in any event, what do you think they should study if they want to get into this field?
1: So the answer is no. I mean, I'm a social worker. It is very rare to find social workers in the lobbying and advocacy business. That's not something I'm proud of. I think the profession should kind of reassess why we we all aren't advocates and we all aren't doing lobbying work as part of our professional responsibilities. But it is an unusual route for, for me. In fact, what I look for are people who have bachelor's degrees in something that makes them a curious and skilled learner. And then they look for people who have graduate degrees in something that gives them expertise. I actually, you know, a lot of people and a lot of my colleagues are lawyers. Most of my colleagues in the progressive not-for-profit lobbying site are what we would call a recovering lawyer, but I don't actually think that people normally would say it's it's it, it could be law, but it isn't. I, you know, people who study political science and uh, and public policy issues in school, it's helpful that they've done it, but it's never enough. I want to know what you did with your degree. I want to know, you know, did you have an internship where you produced a product? Can you show me a paper that you've written on a policy issue that's you know one page and succinct and accurate? So I you know I'm. I could be an anomaly here, uh, Andrea, so for your listeners, but I'm looking for people who have have a product, have done something, and it doesn't matter what discipline it was in. But from an academic standpoint, I think anyone could get into the the advocacy space as long as their academic credentials match their kind of experience and their product-driven work. Okay,
0: terrific. You've already touched on the next question with respect to whether it is important to have a graduate degree in order to succeed in your field. You mentioned that some of your colleagues are recovering lawyers. You yourself have a Master of Social Work from Catholic University. Do you think it is important to have a graduate degree? And if so, Tom, what are the most useful ones to have?
1: I do think it's helpful, but I don't think it's necessarily required particularly in the early years of your profession. I think people who get graduate degrees should get them in things that they're passionate about and something that they really want an expertise in and I, I you know frequently I think people move through undergrad school to graduate school more as a way to fill time or to check a box than to actually learn and develop an expertise. So I like people who are doing it for a purpose. So if you're passionate about international development where you spend some time in in your career having a you know a master's degree in international development or in you you know, public policy with a specialty in it. Then I then I'm interested and I'm curious and I and the validation of the degree helps with both employment and kind of career promotion. So most of the folks in my firm that become senior level directors and or partners, equity-based partners, do have master's degrees or higher. We had one lawyer, a one recovering lawyer here who had a, a JD. So most of the people who move up into, you know, that higher level partnership track would have a, a degree. But we actually encourage our associates when they're here without master's degrees to use the time that they're here to think about how to pursue a master's degree that's appropriate for them. And then if they find one that's here and it's local, we actually offer them the flexible time to be able to go do the master's while they're working for us. So uh, we encourage it, we facilitate it, but but I like to do that in a very kind of practical sense, not just in a fill time, check a box, you know, fill up your resume kind of style.
0: Terrific. That's incredibly helpful. So Tom, what for you is the best part of being in this profession?
1: Making real change, you know, making a difference. When you look at a piece of legislation that you've helped write and that you've shepherded through the process, you organize the volunteers and the the advocates behind it and it happens. And it happens in a way that changes the world. You know, it helps suffering people. It provides medicine to folks that need it. It you know stops human trafficking and slavery. It gets, you know, more AmeriCorps volunteers on the ground in cities across and, and towns across America. When you can really measure your impact, there's nothing more valuable than that, nothing more rewarding than that at the end of a at the end of a hard day, a hard year a hard decade. You want to look back and say, there's a lot of struggle in this business. It's not easy. It can be brutal at times, frankly, but the reward is big change, transformative change, and sometimes change that is historic. It's a high reward, but it's a high risk business too.
0: So the flip side, because as we know, it doesn't matter how high up you are on the totem pole, even running your own company, there are going to be aspects of your job that are not so much fun. So (laughs) what is the part of your current job as the head of your firm that sucks the most?
1: Well... The easy answer is Donald Trump. But I guess the the second uh, is I have an MSW, not an MBA. So I'm not by nature a businessman. So when I first started this company, everyone said, you know, a for-profit lobbying firm serving not-for-profits was doomed to fail. Well, we're almost 30 years old. I guess we're probably not going to fail. But running a business is, uh, is a struggle for me. I have a hard time with the meeting with the accountant, you know, every week. I have a hard time sitting down with the corporate lawyer. I struggle with spreadsheets and I struggle with personnel challenges and benefit plans. Those are not naturally exciting for me, but they are necessary to run a good company and to take care of people who work for you. So so I do them.
0: (laughs) I think it is so important that you shared that, Tom, (laughs) because I think it would be safe to say that our listeners might just assume that because the Sheridan Group has been around for almost 30 years, all of that must have come easily to you. And while we'll be getting more into how you built the Sheridan Group and how you built your career in the main Time for Coffee interview, and our listeners should check show notes to see if that's already dropped. The fact of the matter is that sometimes you have to do things that push you outside your comfort zone.
1: Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. And, and the business side of the business is, is way outside my comfort zone. And, you know, someday I probably should be smart enough to just either hire a CEO or or to talk to partners about maybe somebody else taking on that responsibility and doing that part of the job. I mean, every day I look at my calendar and I would say half of it, I'd rather be on Capitol Hill talking issues and negotiating legislation, but that isn't always what is important for me to do. And. I do have some comfort in the fact that my job every day is to make sure everyone who works with us and for us, that I'm helping them do their job better. So we we tend to manage the firm in a way that says, look, use me to help you do your job better. And as long as you are doing a great job, our clients will be happy and we're going to be winning. So, you know, sometimes it's not the most glamorous work and I don't love being stuck back in the office, but while everyone else is on Capitol Hill, you know, working on bills, but, but everyone has to do their part. So that is my part. And I, I take it seriously, even if it's not my favorite thing to do. My dad, was a businessman. He ran his own company for years. So he was, when he was alive, he was very helpful because when I would get really stuck or frustrated, I could call him and he always gave me good advice.
0: Well, listen, <laughs> I have to tell you as somebody who is a relatively new entrepreneur and who has never been a business person, I also don't enjoy that side. <laughs> <laughs> Find somebody who's great at it
1: and hire them.
0: <laughs> well, first I have to earn some revenue, but you know. yeah, that's hard. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Tom, what is the Best career advice you've
1: ever gotten? I would say there's two. Well, one was to take opportunities when they are presented, not to have a rigid career plan because great opportunities will come your way that you never expected. So make sure you... Take them, particularly if they feel right. Use your, you know, your use your gut and your intuition, because it will guide you sometimes to great and wonderful things. And and I certainly have done that. And my career path would not be what it is today if I hadn't taken opportunities that seemed improbable or you know, irrational, at least according to my parents, if they it point they but I, I had done some <laughs> irrational things. But I took those opportunities and they and they brought me to great places. The second thing is something my father said to me when I opened the business, which is he said, never create overhead that you would have to take a client or do business that you wouldn't be proud to do. So never create a nut so big that you have to do whatever it takes to pay it. Always know that if you can control that, you can control the quality of your business and the kind of work that you do. And that has been hugely valuable to me.
0: Wonderful advice. So two final espresso shots. What movies, if any, or Netflix, Hulu, Amazon show, or books do you think accurately depict this line of work.
1: Well, mine. I, I think my, my book probably is the best, most <laughs> accurate depiction of the profession at the moment. But I would say the two things that helped me. It was very hard. I have a, a large family that's still in Ireland. We're relatively new off the boat, and so it was very hard for me to describe to my relatives in Ireland, and it was to some of my relatives in the U.S. too, about what I did for a living. And the two things, one TV show and one movie, really helped. One was West Wing. It was really helpful in just showing how the you know the inside of of Washington works, and you know how these decisions are made, and how politics and substance and policy play off against each other, sometimes with each other, sometimes against each other, and what the balance of power feels like when you're in the middle of it. So West Wing was really was really good for that, and I could call my sisters and say, hey, this, and I one or two times talked to the producers about issues. They did a Gaze in the Military episode that I helped them on, and so I'd call my sisters and say, hey, watch this episode of West Wing. You kind of get an idea of what I do every day, and then there was a movie that Annette Benning was in years ago, she was an environmental lobbyist It was called The American President. She kind of falls in love with the president, and that was a great movie for lobbyists because she's a lobbyist, but she's an advocate, a public interest advocate. And she's trying to pass an environmental bill. And, and it's just, you know, it, she's in meetings and they have like a vote count on the wall and they're ripping down you know numbers, you know, until they get the votes they need to pass their bill. And, and you know, that had a real time, very realistic because it was also public interest lobbying. So there was nothing glorious. There was no three martini lunches in it. It was the hard work of doing public interest lobby work. So I love that movie because it was it was a way for me to tell it. go see that movie and you, you'll kind of get what I do.
0: Fantastic. Well, we will include both
1: of those movies
0: in our show notes. Final espresso shot. What would Java junkies be surprised to learn about your profession as a lobbyist or social good?
1: So first and foremost, I think lobbying is a constitutional right and privilege, The right to petition your government is as guaranteed as any other right in the Constitution. And I think we debate other rights in the Constitution, maybe over-debate them, like the Second Amendment. But this right to petition your government is very much at the core of democracy. And I think because lobbying has gotten such a bad name, it's surprising for people to hear that there are white hat lobbyists. There are people here in town that are working for the public interest, for the common good every day, and trying to use the balance of power and and the rights and privileges of democracy to get better. Better things done to get good things done for people who need it. You know the black hats exist, and they exist in droves, and they're all over K Street, and and they use money to get their way into and through the political levers of government. But they are not entitled to it alone. And democracy, for at least the moment, and I'm worried about it. But democracy, for at least the moment, is is still a, a privilege that we can all use, and we all have the right to use it. And and if we do use it, and we use it for good great things can happen and and that's actually what the book is about is stories about how just simple citizens saw problems used their citizenship and solved them using the political process that were that we're guaranteed as a privilege. And I think that's a surprise to people that there are actually good guy lobbyists and uh, what I call myself a white hat lobbyist because they only hear about the black hats and they only see the black hats. And you know that's the only thing that politicians talk about is the swamp and, oh God, the swamp exists. And today it sometimes feels like a sewer. But in that space, there are also those of us that try every day to compete against those folks, usually to do the right thing. And we need the power of citizens. We need the people power to balance that.
0: Tom's new book is entitled, Helping the Good Do Better, How a White Hat Lobbyist Advocates for Social Change. Tom, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. And thank you so much for everything you're doing to try to make this world a better place. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you.